This is American Real, where we aim to inspire, empower, and enlighten you through the stories of our guests. Here's your host, Roger Brooks. Are we that caught up in a cancel culture being woke and sensitive? Where did that come from? And why is that such an important part of who you are? Words have no power. It's the way you use them. Over the course of the last three to four years, woke has become a kind of censorship almost. Oh, you can't say that word. Oh, you can't say this word. The college circuit, which used to be the primary bread and butter for comedians, you can't be booked on the college circuit anymore unless you are very careful with the words you use. And there will be people who complain and there will be people who walk out. I'm watching all these things happen and I think the woke movement is a perfect example of everything that you can do wrong with words. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is David Voss. You are the best-selling author of the new book, Liar Alleged, a tell-all, celebrities, sex, and all the rest. The book is right here. Let's David. hold it up at the same time. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Welcome. Okay, to the there show. you go. Thank you. It's really, really good to be here, Roger. Thank you for having me on. Oh my gosh. It's uh it's a pleasure. And um, you know, every once in a while I come across um uh interesting people. And I have to say that you are certainly one of those very interesting people that I've had the privilege to to get to know a little bit after our conversation today. I hope to know you a lot better. But there's one thing I must say that I'm very impressed with, and and that is your um, uh, willing to say what you what, what's on your mind, what you mean, and not holding back. And I I wanted to start out our conversation if I could by reading a quote that I found on your website, and I think it might lead into our our discussion here. Right. And this is the quote. It says, have we become such snowflakes? We need this number of pronouns, acronyms, and an adjective. Are we that caught up in a cancel culture being woke and sensitive? Would everyone please get a grip? I love that. Um, can you expand on that? What, where did that come from? And, and, and why is that such an important part of who you are? It came from my belief that, that words have no power. It's the way you use them. And when all of these pronouns, when, you know, when the woke movement began, it began as a racial movement, primarily for African-Americans, and as a very positive thing, as a very positive step forward culturally. But over the course of the last three to four years, woke has become a kind of censorship almost. Oh, you can't say that word. Oh, you can't say this word. Oh, no, I'm not a he or a she. I'm not sure where I am on the scale. So I'm a them. Well, I am so sorry, but I'm not calling you them unless you're schizophrenic because you have every right to be wherever you want to be on that scale. But don't ask me to call you 14 different things. You know, a really recent example is um, 
uh, I have a lot of friends in the ballet world from the old days. And at the moment, I think primarily because of the woke movement, you know, it used to be that there was a company class. Professional dancers would get together and have a company class. Sometimes the class would get split. The men would go over here and learn how to partner women. And the women would go over here and learn how they can jump up onto a man's shoulder without breaking their neck. And I'm simplifying, you know, what Balanchine would slap me for, but that's the way it was. Now, more and more, there are no men's classes or women's classes. There is flat shoe and point shoe because the woke movement doesn't like so much that there would be a man's class or a woman's class. Mm -hmm. So how do you get around that? You say flat shoe and point shoe. Well, when we start getting to be that way, you know, Bill Maher, just the other night, I was listening to him on TV, one of my heroes, because he refuses to embrace the woke movement, as does Kathy Griffin and a lot of comedians, but they suffer for it because the college circuit, which used to be the primary bread and butter for comedians, you can't be booked on the college circuit anymore unless you are very careful with the words you use. And there will be people who complain and there will be people who walk out. And I see this even in my one man show, which was doing well until uh, COVID kind of put the skids on it. But there were a couple of words that I used to use and I basically, when my show was filmed and when I was hired on a by an adult-only cruise line to do the show, I was told that don't sign the contract unless there are two words that you cannot use, that you have to abbreviate. So you are allowed to say the N-word that way, but you're not allowed to say the whole word. And you're allowed to say the F-word that way, but you're not allowed to say the whole word. And that confused me. And I said, well, which F word? I mean, what are we talking here? Are we talking the sexual act F word? Or are we talking about the word, you know, fag or faggot that I've been called my whole life? Because I can't do my, I can't talk to people without using that word because it, it, it was such an important part. It is such an important part of my life. So the woke movement gets on my nerves with 14 adjectives. We really don't need that many. And, and, and I think it goes to an insecurity <laughs> that we do, that young people have. And I think if you wanted to connect the dots, it would probably be that when you're busy texting somebody or you can just pick up your phone willy-nilly and call somebody and say 10 words and hang up, maybe we're starting to talk in abbreviations as opposed to whole sentences and paragraphs. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a great niece came by my house recently, Roger, and 10 minutes into a movie that I thought she would enjoy, she got up and I said, oh, you want me to hit pause? And she said, no, but I can only sit still for 10 minutes. And I thought to myself, hmm, is this some sort of a physical condition? Or does this mean that a person's attention span has become so short? Yeah, they can only watch ten minutes of a movie. You know, God forbid they have to watch Ben Hur. What the? What are they going to do? Yeah. So um, I'm watching all these things happen, and I think the woke movement is a perfect example of everything that you can do wrong with words. <laughs> when yeah. Dick Gregory, a rather famous comedian of the '60s, um, a black man, uh, wrote his book, 
its title was the N-word. And its dedication was, mom, every time you hear this word, know somebody is promoting my book. Well, that's a perfect example of a perfect way to use a controversial word. And not long ago, Roger, I was in New York and walking down 7th Avenue because I'd lived in the West Village for so many years. And I saw this guy and I thought, do I know him? He was an older guy like me. I thought, do I know him? And he kind of was giving me the same, you know, we were giving each other the fish eye. And I thought, hmm. And I said, hey, did you used to live on Sheridan Square? And he said, oh, my God, I don't remember your name, but oh, my God, look at you. I remember who you are. Oh, you old fag. How are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm doing just fine. How are you doing? And we chatted for a couple of minutes. And that was such a perfect uh, little hello that came out of nowhere. So a block later, I'm walking down the same street and I'm, I pass a guy and I hear, I hear, you know, in my ear, fucking faggot. And I thought, oh, okay, that's not the right way to use that word. (laughs) And so I do something that I made up my mind some years ago that I would do, which is I turned around and I, I caught up with that guy and tapped him on the shoulder, which is dangerous these days because you don't know who has a gun or a knife. And I said, excuse me, but did you just call me a fucking faggot? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I am. I do that. And I am a faggot. And if there's anything you need to know about faggotry, this would be a great time to ask me because you're not using that word the right way. You're using it to try and hurt me. And it's not hurting me. It just makes you look stupid. So are you stupid? And I just stared at him. Well, he muttered something under his breath and kept going. So I felt like one for the team, because I'm not afraid to do that. At my age, I'm 73. If I go down because somebody shoots me, then I go down in a really good way. Whereas if I were a gay man who happened to be 30 and had two kids and needed to get those kids through college, I couldn't have that confrontation for fear of being knifed or shot or hit. All of those things have happened to me. I've been spit on. I've been pushed. I've been hospitalized. I've been chased around the West Village with a gang of people with a baseball bat attempting to, I would assume, kill me. I've been shot. I've been stabbed. All of this because I'm not afraid to talk about my sexuality and I'm not afraid to put my body (laughs) where my mouth is. And a lot of people aren't in a position to do that because they have financial responsibilities, financial responsibilities to their kids and so forth. And, And you know, Roger, growing up, I knew I was gay since I was seven years old. I just knew. And it never occurred to me not to be gay. It never occurred to me that there was something wrong with it until people started telling me that there was something wrong with it. And I'm one of the lucky ones to have grown up that way because so many people who grew up in religious families with a lot of rules and regulations, they weren't allowed to be that way. And so it became a bad thing for them. Right. It's never a bad thing for me. So I'm grateful that I grew up in such a dysfunctional family that I had all my freedom. I didn't have much love and I didn't get much attention, but I had my freedom. And 
and I'm yeah. glad. No, no. And I, I wanted to ask you about, you, you mentioned when you were seven, I, I re remember reading a, a portion of your book when you, I believe, approached the teacher in school, maybe around this age, and, and you were talking about being gay. And, and he came back and said, you mean you're a fag? That right? was the principle, yes. That was the principle, right. <laughs> I so, told the teacher that I was that I was gay because right. I heard that word. My, my uncle, who I suspected of being gay, had used the word gay once. And, you know, it used to be that gay was used on straight people. It meant if you visited prostitutes a lot, you lived a gay life. That was before us gay folk took over that word. But gay was starting to be used hither and there. And so at school one day, everybody was staring at me funny, all the other kids. And I thought, it must be because I'm gay. So I said to this teacher, I said, I think these kids are all like staring at me and making fun of me because I'm gay. And she said, well, there's nothing wrong with being, there's nothing wrong with being gay. There's nothing wrong with being happy. And I said, no, not that kind of gay, gay. And she said, gay. I said, a, a homosexual. She said, ah, we have to go to the principal. So we did. And so she whispered something to the principal and he looked at me and he said, so you're a fag, which was perfectly acceptable in 1957, I guess, because mm -hmm. it was the principal. And I thought, even then I thought to myself, you know, that's a very harsh word or the way he used it was. Yes. I remember that in the book. Uh, yeah. And, and it really set me back. And I thought, and I said, well, I don't think that's a very good word to use. Um, and he said, well, okay, deviant, because deviant was the most accepted word in those days about what a person like me was. But then he went on to say, but people aren't laughing. The kids aren't laughing at you because you're a deviant, David. They're laughing at you because you have a very serious stutter and a speech impediment. And you sound like Daffy Duck. Well, Roger, I came from a family. I was 11 years younger than all my other brothers and sisters. I was a mistake baby. I was the condom that broke, you know? And they were all busy being grownups. They all wanted to get married or go into the military to get out of in a very abusive household because my father was abusive to everybody except me. And so I didn't really have anybody when I was growing up who who listened to me. I'm not sure that anybody in my family actually realized I had a speech impediment hmm. because nobody ever said anything to me. Not my mother, not my father. My father used to tell me to shut up. Um, and I think it was because he didn't like the way I sounded because he would use me as chick bait <laughs> um, to pick up women. You know, he would take me out. Everybody else at home was basically starving. And he'd take me out for ice cream to try and meet up with women to have sex with behind my mother's back. And I was his bait. Oh, look at the father getting the little boy an ice cream. Isn't he cute? But every time I try and say something, he'd say, shut up. Wow. So that should have been a clue to me, but I didn't know I had this speech impediment. And once he said it, and I realized it, I decided it was very dramatic for me. And I didn't know what to do about it, Roger. So I, I ran. I just ran out of school. And I ran until I was too tired to run anymore. It was, I sat under a tree and cried. And I thought, I don't sound right. 
And don't ask me how I learned how to read. But by the time I was four years old, I was reading adult books because only adult books were in our house. There was nothing else to read. I was the unwanted kid. I was the unexpected kid. There were no kids' toys in our house. There were adult things. So I was reading adult books and really enjoying reading, which was my education. And I thought, books are words. And if I'm not saying words the right way, I don't want to say words at all. So I'm not going to talk anymore. So hmm. I went home that night and I said to my mother, I'm not going to talk anymore. And she said, why? And I said, because I sound funny. And how come you never told me? And she said, you don't sound that funny. Chugged another beer, took another Milltown, which is pre-Valium, because my mother was, my mother just wanted so badly to get her life back after having six kids one year apart and then having me as a mistake suddenly realizing she had all of this time that she was going to have to be a mother again when she thought she was going to be free. So mm. all of that was going on. So I decided I wasn't going to talk. And so she sent and she gave me a note and I took it to my, uh, <laughs> to my teacher that said, David doesn't have to talk. So my teacher looked at me and she said, why, why don't you want to talk? So I took out, I was, I was prepared. I'm always prepared. I took out my little pad and my little pen and I write, because I sound funny, mm -hmm. showed it to her. And she said, you know, we have a speech therapist. Because in those days, when public schools actually had money, there were traveling music teachers and speech therapists and art teachers and little kids could get that. So a speech therapist approached me, came to the, our school, I think once or twice a month, and said that, that she would work with me, and but I would have to talk to her. So we made an agreement that I would. And the short of it was she played my voice into a tape recorder and I heard it and I heard what I sounded like and it freaked me out even more. And I thought I, I'll probably never speak again. I would just be one of those people that doesn't talk. I can write, I love writing, I can write. I don't have to talk. So for two years, I didn't talk except to her. And we slowly worked on, first we got rid of the stutter. And then slowly I could hear when she would play back my voice on this tape recorder, that my voice was getting better. And one day I listened to myself and I sounded great. I thought, ah, we did it. I can talk again. So I immediately went up to this boy that I thought was really cute. And I said, I can talk. I can talk again. I don't sound like Daffy Duck. I sound like me. I can talk again. And he said, I don't care if you can talk or not. All you do is stare at my crotch and you're just a little fag. So stay the F away from me and pushed me, pushed wow. me down on the ground and walked away. And I thought, well, hmm, at least he touched me. <laughs> was the first was the first time I was touched by a boy, something that I very much wanted. So I just tried to put a positive spin on it. And I did start talking. And as a result of that, I didn't have a Baltimore accent because growing up in Baltimore, I mean, it was almost like having a Cockney accent in the UK. You know, it was Baltimore Merlin, mm -hmm. a glass of water and what's up. It was very, mm, and I didn't have that. 
So a lot of people that I would encounter on the street or wherever actually thought I was from England. They would say England. They wouldn't say the UK or Great Britain. Right. You know, back then. England. And I'd be, no, I'm I'm from like right down there. They'd be like, well, you you sound funny. And I thought, oh God, not again. I just got over sounding funny, do you know? But they meant that in a different way, which takes me back to words. It's how you use the words and how you interpret the words. Yeah. That's why I think the woke movement is really very dangerous, you know. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I, I actually wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. Is that how did we get here? I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it just seems that, and I have, you know, I have two young, not young, but uh, I have a twenty-one-year-old and a seventeen-year-old, so they're kind of at that uh, age where they're going out the other way. But um, you know, it, I, I see. I don't see the slowing down. It seems to be, you know, gaining speed. And I, but how did we get here? What's your, what's your understanding of where we were, say, even 10, 15 years ago versus where we are today? Well, the really short answer is mobile phones and the internet has sped everybody up before mm. phones and before the internet people had a different cadence they had a different rhythm they could make full sentences they didn't speak in uh, uh code you know it it it, <laughs> it, it wasn't um, acronyms people actually talked to each other they mm. could sit through a dinner party and they were asked to I believe that the generation before mine, um, before the baby boomer generation, had certain expectations in terms of manners about kids. Whether you were poor or rich, you sat at the table until dinner was finished, and that was that. So you might not have wanted to, but you found things to do. You didn't have to pay attention. You could think about something else, but you couldn't just get up. Now I see people who allow their kids to eat standing up with a mobile phone in their hand. Yeah. It's not an unusual day that goes by when I don't walk down a street and somebody bumps into me because they haven't seen me because their head is down on their phone. Yeah. And I think that's a I think that's the root cause of why why our younger generations have so little patience and their attention spans are so short. And you know, as an author, <laughs> Is this scary? To me, it's scarier than artificial intelligence. Because if somebody doesn't have the patience to read an entire book, you know, back in the 50s, we had Reader's Digest. You could read a condensed right. version. It right. was really crappy. I mean, it was the worst of a book, yeah. you know, because it was only the best of a book. So, right. <laughs> right. Uh, but I think we've reached the point again where we're having a kind of a an electronic version of a Reader's Digest society where mm. people just want the the top little bit. That's all. That's enough to keep them happy. And then off they go to do 19 other things fast as and opposed where do you, to slow. <laughs> right. Where do you see this going five years, 10 years from now, 20 years? Where's our society going to be? 
gosh. I, I'd like to thank you, Roger, for such an easy question. <laughs> Let me just get up on this ball here. And we haven't even gotten to my questions yet. <laughs> I uh, I honestly don't know. Uh, I think we're at a point. I think we're at a tipping point one way or the other. Yeah. I would like to think as a positive person that that people will come to their senses and things will get better. Mm-hmm. I am starting to see some people that aren't allowing their kids to have phones until a certain age and are moving what some might call backwards a little bit to more of a mismanners kind of an attitude towards things. And then I see others that seem as uh, so self-absorbed in their own lives that they don't really care what their kids do. So I think it could go either way right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it it's scary because it has to do with how we get things done. And in order to do something right, I believe you have to put in the time to do it. And I see, you know, I see you online a lot because you are um, the you are the owner and the spokesperson for AR Press and American Real Publishing. That's how I got to know you by watching you online and thinking, this guy's not a fraud. This guy sounds like the real thing. Um, so uh, you're online a lot, but you're using being online, I believe, the right way. And I see people online a lot that are using it the wrong way. When I go on to Facebook grudgingly, which I only do to try and push my book because right. I'm not a fan of social media overall. But I, I'm I'm seeing people's salads for lunch. I'm seeing the maps that you see when you sit on an airplane with little dots that show you in New Orleans and then all of a sudden you're in Chicago. People are taking pictures of that and saying, look what I'm doing. I'm yeah. going from New Orleans to Chicago. What am I... What, how what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. A- applaud, send you. you know? It's out of control. It, it should is out, out of control. control. It really is. But let let's let's jump in and talk a little bit more about your book. I know that um, you know you've been thinking about this and and working on it in some capacity for the last twenty five years. But why now? Um, and and why don't you just say a memoir? I don't like the word memoir because it sounds boring to me, to be honest with you. It just seems like a boring word and it can mean so many different things to so many different people. And when I read a biography or an autobiography, I often fast read through the beginning part if it starts when you're a kid. And I kind of wait until you get pubic hair and then I dig in because that's when it's going to start to get good for me. And I didn't want to be one of those memoirs. And unfortunately, in order to write a book about the first half of your life, you do have to include your childhood. So I tried to make it. I happen to have an interesting one. But I I, I tried to put the focus on what happened to me after I got pubic hair, because the foundation of it could be told fast or slow. I opted for fast. And The reason that I decided to write this book after all this time is because finally I retired from the corporate world and the majority of people who were in that first half of my life weren't around anymore. They Mm -hmm. died. So I felt like I could write the truth about them. And the truth became really important to me, Roger, because 
uh, I have an addictive personality and I, I grew up, I was a liar almost my entire life. And, and, and I had to look at that. Why was I a liar? Well, it goes back to, I didn't have a sense of self-worth. So I lied. I didn't, I never lied to get stuff. I wouldn't lie to you to try and get a thousand dollars out of you mm -hmm. or, uh, for you to, so that you would loan me your car. I didn't even learn how to drive till I was 45. I would lie to you in the hopes that it would make you like me. Mm. So if you said you just finished reading Gone with the Wind, I would say, oh, wasn't that a great book? I can't believe it. It's so good. And normally that would work pretty well for me until somebody suspected maybe I was lying and said, oh, wasn't it awful when Scarlett O'Hara died? And I said, oh, I cried my eyes out. And then they'd say, you know, you didn't read that book. You a-hole. What's wrong? Right. And they'd never speak to me again. So yeah. lying became a way for me to attempt to make people like me. And when did that change? It changed when I met my partner of the last 47 years, Paul, who was the first person I ever met who I felt like just almost psychically, organically, I felt like that Paul could accept me for who I was, that I didn't have to pretend to be who I wasn't. Those first 29 years of my life, I pretended to be people. Part of, I'm a dramatic person by nature, and so part of that was fun. It was fun to pretend to be different people, two different people, four different people. Oh, you want to talk to somebody that's been to Spain? I've been to Spain. It was fabulous. They have those things there called uh, tapas. <laughs> and I usually give myself away pretty fast. But when I met Paul, it just felt like he was going to accept me for who I was. And I was also... I was so tired of lying and I was tired of all of my habits. I was tired of the drugs I was on. I was tired of uh, just saying what people thought I should say. I was tired of the career moves I was making. I was tired of my sexual addiction and uh, so many addictions. You know, I think my very first addiction might have been crotch staring. Like when I was five, I remember staring at little boys' crotches. And I remember one of my sisters saying, what are you looking at? And we came from a white trash family where their language, everybody, you know, just cussed like a sailor. I said, I, I'm staring at that little boy's crotch. And she said, why? And I said, because it interests me. And she was like, oh, walked away. So crotch staring was my first addiction. <laughs> Followed by, I think, beginning to understand that by lying, I could get attention because mm. I got no attention at home. And I think that's what started me on the path of addictions. And then one of the reasons we discovered, the speech therapist discovered why I wasn't talking correctly is because my tongue was tied. No one in my family realized it, but it impacts the way you're able to pronounce your words. Sure. And so when she established that, she said, take this note home to your mom, tell her that you need to go to a doctor who needs to clip your tongue. Yeah. Then I will be able to reintroduce you to how to pronounce your words and you won't sound funny. Well, 
that happened, only it was not pleasant. And um, I was bleeding and it hurt. And my mother was calling him a son of a bitch while she was chain smoking. And there was blood everywhere. And we could, we took the bus home and I was holding gauze. And the doctor gave me these two little blue pills. And he said, uh, if you're in any pain, take one of these pills. So I took this little blue pill and my mother went off to work. She was, I wasn't bleeding to death. I was going to be all right. I took that pill and it made me feel so good. And I thought, wow, if one pill makes me feel good, what will two pills make me feel like? So I took the other one. It made me feel great. I hadn't felt that good, maybe ever. So now I'm crotch staring and looking around for little blue pills. So I checked my mother's purse that night and she has little blue pills in her purse. Turns out they're called Milltowns, precursor to Valiums. Mm. She would take Milltowns during the day and drink a few beers. And that's how she got through her life of having an abusive husband and all these kids that she didn't want to deal with anymore. So I started stealing pills from her. Then I started going to school and pretending I was sick and saying to the school nurse, I bet I bet some of those blue pills would make me better. Hmm. And she was like, what blue pills? You're not getting any pills. Here, have some Pepto-Bismol. You know, so that didn't work. How so, old were you, David, at that time? Eight. Wow. So by the time I was eight, I was addicted to pills that I would steal anywhere I could find. When I <laughs> recently, I forget who, some celebrity who came clean about their addiction said that they used to go to uh see real estate agents open houses and and go into people's bathrooms and search for pills. I forget who that was, but it was somebody really well known. Wow. And I would do the same thing. Relate. Yeah. 1958. And, you know, David was looking for pills. And as I wasn't speaking and we were dirt poor, my brothers taught me how I could dive into dumpsters behind grocery stores and get food at night. So hmm. I did that a lot. And then I kind of ran out of things to write on. So I was walking through a five and dime store. We had those in those days, uh, Woolworths, Murphy's. And I saw a diary. And it was pink. It was obviously for a little girl, but I liked it. And I thought, I really want that diary. I don't have any money. So how am I going to get it? And I thought, um, I can steal it. So I stole the diary. So the first 10 or 12 diaries that I started writing in, because I would write rather than talk to myself, I would write, um, were all stolen. So now I have pills, crotch staring, lying, and theft under my belt. And I'm not 10 yet. And nobody gives a shit. Or it's not being noticed. My mother never once said to me, where'd you get that diary? <laughs> it just didn't that wasn't that that wasn't on her radar because she had spent since she was 17 years old doing nothing but having children and raising them. And then 11 years later, I the mistake condom came and she was just thinking another year. All my daughters are going to be married. My sons are going to be in the military. I can have my life back. I can get a. I can get rid of this nest. And I popped in. Then you were born. <laughs> she thought, oh, shit, 18 more years. I'm going to have to do this, you know. And so my mother always cared for me. But she never cared much about me. I think she was resentful. 
Mm. And I felt it. We were more like roommates mm. than mother <laughs> and son. And, you know, I, I call Anita O'Day the jazz singer who I met much later during my show business years. I called her my real mother because she gave me more mothering than I ever got from my own mother, which is weird because she had nine abortions. Hmm. She used to say to me, you know, David, you, you're the, I, I wish you were my son. You're the son I never had. And I kept thinking, what the F? Like you had nine abortions. You could have had a lot of sons. What, yeah. you know, why me? Which one of those was, which abortion was I? I used to make jokes about it with her. I saying, well, was I abortion number five? Was I abortion six? <laughs> you know? And she would get the majority of her abortions, by the way, P.S., little celebrity gossip, she got from Hairpin Betty. Well, who was Hairpin Betty? The mother of Frank Sinatra. Hmm. How did Frank Sinatra begin his show business career? With the mob. How did he meet the mob? His mom, Hairpin Betty, did abortions for all of the mob's dames, dolls, girlfriends, so wow. that their wives, their nice Italian wives wouldn't find out about it. So it was, um, it was Anita O'Day that really, towards the end of my career in show business, said to me, you've got to fix yourself or you're going to end up like me. Do you want to be a heroin addict? Do you want to be pronounced dead three times and be brought back to life? Do you want to spend time in prison? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And she was the one who would say to me things that in a normal family, a parent would say to you. It was, it happened to be a jazz singer. And she said it in scat and in weird ways. Sometimes she'd sing it and one of the things my mother did teach me, Roger, was pig Latin, which is a funny way to say things. And she and I would, Anita and I would speak in pig Latin all the time because she grew up with pig Latin. And it, it was, was fun. We could say things that, you know, she would People say wouldn't. in pig Latin, like airway and kia et kia oint Where can I get a joint? And I'd say, oh, over here on the owner K. Yeah, over there on the corner. So we would do a lot of drug talk because even though she did finally get off heroin, which she was very proud of, Anita was always an alcoholic and very into pills. It's just so many of the celebrities that I worked with were messed up that way. I, I almost think that, I think that what I learned from celebrities, which is an important part of my book, it's not the narrative of my book per se, um, but it's an important part of my book because show business is an important part of my life as a lighting and sound designer and a technical director. And I became known as a celebrity whisperer. I was the guy that Columbia Records or Capitol Records or Atlantic Records, they would hire me not just to do lights and sound and make sure that their performers got where they were supposed to go, but they would also hire me because I had a way of getting somebody on stage and off stage. There were times when I literally pulled a needle out of somebody's arm and pushed them. Oh my gosh. God damn it, they got on stage and they did their show. Because and I bet there were not many people like you to be there able to- There were not many people like me. Right, then. so you were in high demand for that. Plus on the other end of that, <laughs> because my lighting and sound skills were really good, but on the other end, I was getting all those gigs through the mafia mm. because- in those days, that's how money was laundered. Radio stations would play your tunes if 
if they got payola. There was a huge payola scandal in the 50s and 60s. And there would be concerts. I remember one concert in particular. It was was an Ella Fitzgerald concert. And I went backstage. It was a 6,000-seat theater. And I went to the box office with the house manager. And we counted ticket stubs because... It's paper tickets in those days. We counted it. He counted out how much money it was in cash. And I put it in a little attache case and I would fly back to New York with it. And who I call in my book, Harry, Jerry, and Larry, which were my names for all of the mafia, Harry, you know, Harry the horse, Jerry the giraffe, and Larry the lion. Not their real names, right. but close. And I would, i get, uh, they would tell me to, like go to the Acme bar and look for the guy in the green hat and give him that attache case at four o'clock tomorrow. And that's what I do. And he'd thank me and walk off or go to the Acme bar at three o'clock in Vegas and look for the guy that's got a Boston Globe newspaper under his arm and give him that satchel you have. And that's what I do. Well, that was money laundering. And it created Roger huge issues because there were people in the music industry that would read in Billboard that their album has had sold 40,000 copies that week. So they'd go to their agent and say, or their manager and say, where's all my money? Where are my residuals for those 40,000 copies? Sometimes the manager couldn't answer them because they didn't even know that the mafia was involved. Wow. In reality, they only sold 4,000 albums and that's how much money they got. All the rest of that, money laundered by the mafia believable i was a i was a mafia money mule and in return for that i was getting to work with legendary stars none of them knew they were working for the mafia i mean none of them knew wow a few of them knew frank sinatra knew tony bennett had an idea peggy lee was clever about what was going on but the majority of them they didn't know what was happening they just kept changing agents and managers because they thought they were getting screwed on their royalties unbelievable no and you i couldn't about, tell them a ride of would have ended up at the bottom of the hudson do you know right right you talk about a lot of these different uh scenarios in the book and i just wondered is there anything that you're concerned about or embarrassed about um in the book itself and if so you know what might that be I've been so embarrassed of my life for so many years that I think it's one of the primary reasons why it took me until I turned uh, 72. I think it took me that long to get over my embarrassment to write the truth because the last addiction, I've gotten rid of all of my addictions. The last addiction that I got rid of was the... I wanted to be honest about everything. I I didn't want to tell any more lies. I didn't want to tell any more exaggerations. I wanted to be honest. And I knew that I couldn't be, I I knew I couldn't write a book and not be honest. So uh, my last addiction um, was giving up lying to be honest. And it was a rough road, not because it wasn't giving up the addiction. (laughs) Roger, I learned something very interesting. Most people prefer to be lied to than to hear the truth. That sounds a little puzzling. Right. But when you are used to doing something your whole life, in my case, lying, and you give up lying, I I went, 
because I'm a person of extremes, I went the opposite way and I became brutally honest. So if somebody would say to me, because I wasn't going to lie anymore, I was not going to be addicted <laughs> to that. If somebody would say, what do you think? How do I look? I'd say, oh, you look like shit. You know, that's not <laughs> right. your color. As right. opposed to eh, right. throwing in what a normal person would say, right. which is, well, you know, right. you look fine. But, you know, remember that pink dress you wore last week? That would probably be pretty for tonight. I didn't get that part down pat yet. I still don't have it down pat. I still sometimes just shoot myself totally in the in the foot by just blurting out the truth. Um, and it's one of the, some people call me really brave, <laughs> you know, that I would stop a person on the street and say, you know, why did you just call me a faggot? But that really isn't bravery for me that's just not having filters and telling the truth. Yeah. The truth was that pissed me off. So I'm going to tap you on the shoulder and say, why did you say that? Why are you using the word that way? That's that's an example of the kind of honesty that can kill you. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I know a lot of liars that are living very healthy lives and aren't fearful of things. And, you know, I'm the guy who gets the occasional death threat. I'm the guy who you know, has scars on my body from being stabbed. I was shot. I was chased by a gang with a baseball bat. They were trying to kill me. These things happened when I was helping found the Gay Liberation Front. We were laying down on railroad tracks and later with ACT UP with AIDS and blocking traffic. You know, I know people that were run over. I know people that were killed by by people who ran them over because they were laying down in the middle of Wall Street. It's um, So mine's been a really interesting life. And the honesty part is what motivated me to write this book. And it was it was therapeutic and it was really hard. And there were there, there are whole years of my life, Roger, that are embarrassments. I mean, I robbed my mother in drag when I was 19, I yeah. robbed her. I remember that story. She wouldn't recognize me. Duh. You know, I robbed her in a blonde wig of all things. I mean, at least I could have been a brunette. Maybe she would, you know, that might have worked because she was probably hung over. But a blonde, not so much, you know. And then as it turned out, it's a, it's a funny story in the book because she ended up wanting half the money. Yeah. <laughs> and a mother I had. It's like I had no moral compass. Neither did she. Her moral compass went down the tubes with around her sixth kid because her life was so awful yeah. that she just gave up trying to do things the right way and would just do things any way she could to get by. Um, so, yeah, I've had a lot of embarrassing moments. I um, And I've had professionally embarrassing moments as well, which I go into in the book, uh, my first Carnegie Hall was a very embarrassing moment because I was told by Columbia Records that over time at Carnegie Hall is really, really seriously, because it's a union hall, it's a union theater. Seriously, you go into overtime, big money, big, big, big money. Columbia Records didn't want to pay big money. So this performer was meant to do one false exit, three encores, that's it, because more than that and the 19 songs would have put us in overtime. So mm. that's what I was told. Those were my instructions. I had five spotlight operators. 
so at the end of the the end of the gig, at the end of the three curtain calls and uh, encores, I thanked them all and I said, "Your tip envelopes are with your union rep. Thank you guys very much. She's not coming back. Have a good night." And they all thanked me and clicked off except for one. And he said, are you sure she's not coming back? And I said, yeah, I'm positive. I was told by the record company she's not coming back. And he said, but this is Carnegie Hall. Everybody comes back. And I thought, oh, shit. Sure enough, out she walks. I had one spotlight, stage right. And I froze. I didn't know what to do. I thought, oh, God, what am I going to do? And then I thought, oh turn all the lights up to full, make the stage as bright as possible. And the guy on the fifth spotlight said, I'll cover her as best I can. But she looked peculiar because she was lit way more on one side than the other. And I was so humiliated by that because I actually believed the record company and didn't think, you know, my Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall album, I played until it didn't play anymore. And one of the lines that she has... <laughs> on that LP is, uh, I'll sing them all and we'll stay all night, you know? Well, you know, somebody paid for that, but it sure as hell wasn't Columbia Records. Right. So I had embarrassing stage moments as well. You know, I, I, I shit myself at Avery Fisher one night because I was, uh, I had just come from Mexico and I was doing a concert there. It was the middle of show. There was nobody to relieve me. I was running the light board and calling cues Montezuma's revenge kicked in and there was nothing I could do but sit there and continue to do lights. And in that particular, in Avery Fisher Hall in those days, <laughs> the lighting booth was in the middle of the audience. It wasn't up in the sky like God. The sound booth was up there and the spotlights were up there, but the lighting booth was on the first mezzanine. Mm -hmm. So I sat there with surrounded by 2,800 people Um in a tuxedo, um, uh, praying that nobody smelled what had happened until every single person left. And that was a, a huge professional embarrassment. And my embarrassments with relationships, I go into detail in the book because I didn't know. I never knew what love was. I had a psychiatrist once. When I hit puberty, my mother said, we have to see a psychiatrist. You keep saying you're gay. I, we have to find out. So we went to a clinic and the psychiatrist told her that I had lots of problems, but being gay wasn't one of them. So she said, okay, so you're gay. So we have to find you a boyfriend. So that was her solution. Like, okay, gay son, find boyfriend, drink beer, take blue pills. And, um, but the embarrassing part was having never known what love was, I confused love with sex. So I would have sex everywhere I could get it. And, and I would think that was, I don't know, for 20 minutes, I was loved. And these were in the days before AIDS. So you could pretty much, there was a sexual liberation going on, not just in the gay community, but, you know, women were burning their bras and things were happening. You could do anything you wanted that couldn't get fixed with a shot of penicillin or a couple of pills. And there were a lot of people in a lot of communities, not just the gay community, who were experimenting with sex during that time, just pre-AIDS. And, um, and I met this guy, a very well-known fashion photographer, Bill King. And I was beginning to fall in love with him. And I didn't know what that feeling was, Roger. And it scared me 
And I thought, what is this feeling? I've never felt this before. This can't be good. This is, I'm the, I'm the homo hobo. P people used to call me the homo hobo because I would just travel places and, you know, be with performers or hitchhike across the country for fun. Just did things like that. And I ran from him. I ran from that relationship, the first potential relationship, because I was so afraid of what I was feeling. I didn't know what love was. Mm. It wasn't, again, until I met my, my, the guy I'm still with, Paul, my, my husband's spouse partner of 47 years. That's when I finally realized what love was. And mm. it changed my life because I'd never, I'd never been around anybody in love never been around my sisters who were in love. They just married to get away. My brothers, military. So you didn't know what it was to get away. My mother, she like. tried, but she didn't really love me. I didn't know what love was. It was a yeah. new experience for me. Hmm. That's an important part of the narrative of my book. Yeah. Is how important it is that for kids that are growing up, that they understand what love is some way, <laughs> somehow, if they're in an abusive family, there are other ways maybe that they can find love. But for me, that was a that was my downfall. That was what led me to all the drugs and all the addictions was the lack of the love, just wanting somebody to to like me, thinking that liking was loving. And as you know, it's very different. Yeah. So in the book, you you took the stance on you, you named a lot of people in the book. And um, what made you, you know, some people may say, well, I, I won't put their real name or I'm not going to, what, why did you, why was that important to you for you to, to share those stories? With well, people? it goes back to honesty, Roger. It goes back to, if I say a fake person, then you're not going to know maybe that I'm talking about Peggy Lee who was fabulous to me and was wonderful. And what a character, the majority of the celebrities that I worked with, were fantastic. They were very broken, but they were fantastic to work with. And I learned so much from them. I learned what not to do from celebrities. When you are a real legendary celebrity, when you're a Betty Davis or a Peggy Lee or a Frank Sinatra or a Johnny Mathis, somehow you just that talent just comes to you. It, it's not learned. And so the talent is not the issue. It's what you do around the talent. And that's what I write about in my book, what these performers did around the talent. And that's what taught me what not to do. It mm. took me a long time to figure it out. But, you know, it was Anita O'Day that taught me. I would, she said to me, you're going to make a shitty heroin addict. Don't do that. You're just going to, you're, you're just going to die so fast. You're not even going to have any fun with it. Don't do heroin. Go find something else to do. But she could talk to me that way and get away with it. And I had an editor who I worked with before I started working with your company who said to me, you should take Frank Sinatra out of your book because you write really bad things about him because he was a real jerk to me. Peggy Lee once said to me about Frank Sinatra, she said, you know, Frank, if you're a person who will sign off once you're on wants an autograph of you, then Frank will like you. But if you're a person and nobody wants your autograph, he'll play kick the can with you. And I found that to be true with Frank. He was a, he was a total jerk to me. And she said, if you put this in your book, 
all of the people who think Frank Sinatra is a god are going to give you one-star ratings on Amazon. They're not going to not buy the book, and it's going to make you a very unpopular person. So why do you want to do that to yourself? And I said, because what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to be, you know, the candy man? Am I supposed to write about all of the celebrities and legendary people that I had a great time with and not say anything about the jerks, about the Eartha Kitts and the Betty Davises and the Frank Sinatras? No, I'm going to tell it all. This goes back to what I said earlier, brutally honest. Should I? I don't know. I got a one star. I got my first one star on Amazon, which actually scared me more than a death threat that I got last week. Um, and and I read it and I thought, this guy didn't read my book. The little thing that he wrote with it. He didn't read right. it because he was complaining that my book was vulgar. Well, the disclaimer on the very first page right. of the book exactly. says it's vulgar. And don't read it. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't read the book if it's vulgar. So but and luckily, Amazon took that star off. Good, good. You um, did have a book review, though, that was banned. No. Tell us about that. Only me. You know, I I even I even posted this on the Authors Guild. I'm a member of that guild. And nobody had ever heard about this before. How, how is it possible? Well, apparently it was a really good review. All of the reviews I've gotten for this book, I'm, I'm shocked, have been amazing. I mean, Kirkus Review has given me starred status, which only 1% of books get. And all of these reviews have been wonderful, but this one, and I waited and waited and waited for it to come out. And then I got an email from a guy who said, we're really sorry. It's a great review, but we can't give it to you and we can't release it because our lawyers looked at it and said that you've said so many dishy things about so many people and they can't defend themselves. So I emailed back and said, of course they can't defend themselves. They're dead. I mean, what about Lincoln? You know, are you going to, what if somebody said something bad about Lincoln? Are you going right. to ban the, uh, you know, a bad Lincoln book review? Is there a difference? What, what, what is this? This is crazy nuts. But if you look carefully at their contract, they're allowed to not give you a review for any reason, for anything that they deem. And their lawyers spooked them. Okay. Whereas the other six national reviews that I received, the lawyers didn't spook them. I don't think anybody's going to sue me. Well, if you're dead, you can't libel a dead person. Right. <laughs> That's the law. And, and a state could come after you, but I don't say that much bad. No. Most people did, say good things about. Did you intentionally not tell stories about people that are still alive? No. Johnny Mathis is still alive. Jane Oliver is still alive. Uh, a couple of others are still alive. It's just that when I got out of show business... It was 1980. And so most of the newer people accepting Manhattan Transfer and Jane Oliver and Johnny Mathis, most of the people that I worked with were dead mm. because I didn't stay in show business. I changed careers when I turned 30. I got out of show business because I thought there was there was too much temptation in it for me, Roger. Mm. Having an addictive personality and being in show business you're around so many people that are addicted to things. And we all know that if you're trying to overcome an addiction, it's best to be a little more selective about who your friends are and what your experiences are. So I chose luxury travel, which is going to be, I hope, 
uh, part two of my mashup tell-all. I was going to ask you, is there going to be a part two? I hope so. I mean, most of the people that I will be writing about are alive. So I will have to proceed with more caution and have more money for legal representation. <laughs> but the majority of what I'm writing about will be the places that I've been to. I've been to 141 countries and I've traveled over 7 million real air miles. I've been around the world more times than two thirds of the astronauts. Wow. So I have some stories to tell about that. But there's also a part of me that just wants to write like a gay rom-com that is just trivial and fun and maybe will make some money, you know, because there's a part of me that thinks, let me see what happens with Liar Alleged with, let me see what happens with part one, because you guys have been AR press. That's what you call yourself. Yeah. Um, you've been remarkable. Every single person that I've worked with at AR press has been remarkable and you've helped me. And I didn't ever think that I was actually going to be able to hold a book in my hand like this. I just didn't think I was ever going to have that physicality because the first company that I went to was a company that does traditional publishing. Well, if you don't know all the publishing words, you don't know what all this stuff means. I'm writing a book. That's as much as I knew. What is traditional publishing? That means you have to find an agent. Then the agent has to find an editor representing one of the big publishing companies that likes your book. Well, that that process, if you add it all up and look at the averages, is three years. Yeah. I'm 72. I have to wait until I'm 75 for a traditionally published book to come out, if somebody even wants it, if they'll even touch it, based on the fact that it's adult material. And the way things are going these days with book burnings and whatnots, there are a lot of publishing companies Go into a bookstore, the ones that still exist, the brick and mortars, and look at how much nonfiction there is and look at how much fiction there is. <laughs> and you're going to see the traditional publishing companies are not taking risks very much these days, unless you're a Stephen King or heir to the throne like a Harry. Then you get to then you get to dish. You know, I bet they'd have published his review. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. You know it well. You obviously know it well. And that's why I came to you guys, because I realized that as an elder author with a story to tell, a good story, if I wanted to live to see that happen, I needed to self-publish. And I also think that it's ridiculous that if the statistics are to be believed, Roger, and you know this, but maybe the people who are listening don't, only... Only one in a thousand people who send out what's called a query kit or a query letter, which is a letter that tries to interest a literary agent who is the only person who can represent you to a publishing company. You can't just send something to a publishing right. company. It goes right in the garbage can. So one in a thousand people, one in a thousand of these literary agents will actually take a new client. One in a thousand. And I didn't know that. And I did the query letter and the query kit and sent out to 80 people and did all of this stuff. And I was waiting around for three months, four months, five months. And then I thought, wait a minute, there's something broken with this. Something's broken with traditional publishing. What can it be? And then I realized that statistically, 
if agents, literary agents, are only going to take one in a thousand people, but they will take your 15 to 20%. And if then the publishing companies that they represent you to for every hundred books are only going to take 21 to 23 of them, what are my odds of ever being published? Whereas if I go to AR Press, if I go to the Roger Brooks company, I get an editor, I get my book looked at, was already written, but it got re-edited, it got fixed, it got formatted, it went to KDP on Amazon, and within two weeks of my being published, I had sold over 2,000 copies and I was a number one bestseller. Now, and I'm 73 and I'm alive to enjoy it. If I had gone the traditional route, I'd still be hoping that I heard from a, liter from a literary agent. It's not their fault. Literary agents are running scared too. You know what they're doing these days. They're going to people like me now and right. saying, oh, we see that you sold 4,000 books. So please find you and take half your royalties. And my answer is my, because no, thank you very much. Where were you when I needed you? Are you the one that didn't even bother to send a thank you letter? Because the majority of agents, they just have something on their website that says, if you haven't heard after eight weeks, it means we don't want you. Well, come on, you yeah. know, it, it's, you know, in, in this time where we have, you know, we have robots and artificial intelligence and how, how hard is it to get an intern to take a pre-typed template that says, dear, fill in the blank. David, we're so sorry. You don't really fit our stable of writers. Thank you very much for submitting your book. And within that, Roger, the query process itself, every single literary agent wants something different. Tell us about your book in 300 words. We only want to see the first 50 pages. We want a bio that's not more than 150 characters. Send us the first chapter. Send us the whole book. Don't send us anything. Just send us one paragraph. And Jumping through hoops. You could spend years trying to get an agent. And I know people that have spent years and still don't have one. And they have good material. And I wasn't going to be one of those people. That's what that's why I came to you and you have exceeded, this sounds like now that I'm like pushing you, but I am because there have to be people out there who are elders like me that actually want their book realized. And you did that for me. You and all the people that work with you. I have a beautiful cover design. I got great reviews. I'm selling books. Is it going to make me rich? Probably not the first one, but maybe, you never know. Somebody might want to buy the rights. This might be Netflix. Who knows? Right. So, but it's out there and it's actually happening. And it was it was AR Press. It was American Real. It was you, Roger Brooks, and your team that made that happen for me. And I'm forever in your debt because I didn't think I was going to live to see it. Wow. If I was 30, I might not have cared so much. But, you know, anybody who happens to be listening to this, if you're an elder, don't go the traditional publishing route. It's a dinosaur anyway. It's breaking apart. I'm watching it break apart in front of my very eyes. It's not working anymore. It's broken. You know, it's like an Edsel. It's yeah. the Edsel of publishing. <laughs> and you're the new ones. You're like the smart car. So I we appreciate, appreciate it. And I thank you for it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, the feeling's mutual. And look, I'm so glad because we you know, we talk to a lot of people on a daily basis. Uh, we can't take on every project, 
We do our own vetting as, as our clients should vet. But you're right. The system is broken. And there are other options out there for people. Um, so I'm really glad. I'm really glad you, you, you talked about that. Thank you. But I know we're a little short on time. I did want to ask one question about your writing itself. I know you've been writing your whole life. And, and wow. we're, we're going to have to have you back because there's more there's more that needs to be discussed. And I think this is going to be very, your story is very interesting. And, and what's most interesting is that you're honest about, you know, where, where the whole, where your whole story came from start to finish. But my question is more around writing. How long did it take you to actually produce this book and get it to a place where you were willing to share it? 10 months. It took me 10 months, but it had been percolating in my head for such a long time that I knew what I wanted to say, and I knew that I needed to start at the beginning and have a narrative that was that was timeline-oriented. And I also knew I wanted to put the celebrities in it because it was an important part of my life, but not so much as part of my narrative. So they became a bonus chapter. Um, and with the exception of a few who did help me. I mean, when I worked with Ella Fitzgerald, how I learned, I worked with strippers in high school. All right, that was one of the questions I wanted to get to. Yeah, I know, but I worked with so many different colored strippers and I learned how to light different skin tones. So when I worked with Ella Fitzgerald, this is in the book and not in the bonus chapter, I made her look good and she always thought she was ugly and she was not a beautiful woman, but you know, there was a Jean Krupa, <laughs> She was introduced to Jean Krupa to be a canary, a band singer for her. And he looked at her and said right in front of her, I'm not putting that on my stage. And she never forgot that as long as she lived. She told me that story and she would tear up when she would talk about it. And I said, Ella, I, can, I can't make you beautiful, but I, I know how to make you look good on stage because I used to work with strippers. I know the secrets. And so... That was part of my narrative because I wouldn't have been a good lighting designer and a good sound man had it not been for the strippers that I worked with. They taught me everything, including how to smoke hash. Another one of my addictions. <laughs> All right. Two last questions. First one, if you were to take out your cell phone and call the 20-year-old David, what would you tell him? Oh, God, now I need one of those 14 pronouns that I don't believe in. Um, half of me would want to say, just believe that you have worth and all these addictions will go away. And the other half of me would say, don't change a thing because you learned it the hard way, but you learned it. And I'm, I'm, I'm so happy and proud of where I am now. And I don't feel as though, I don't feel as though anybody could throw anything at me that would throw me off my game. I learned it all the hard way. I didn't learn it in school. I didn't learn it at college. I learned it by doing it. And if I hadn't learned it that way, then 20-year-old David wouldn't have known now what I know now. So I think I would probably say, you know, it's going to be shitty for about another 50 years, and then you'll be good. That's probably what I would say. Awesome. David, welcome to the American Real family. Thank you so much. Last question before I let you go. I try to ask all my guests this. 
at the end of the day, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want people to remember you by? Well, hmm. you know, I made a play, a one-man play, which is part of the book. And I made a video, which I didn't like very much, which was part of the book. And I've lived a rich, full life. But I think my legacy, I really think my legacy is in this book. I think my legacy is this book. So my legacy is, if you really want to know what my legacy is, read this book. You might not like my legacy, but God damn it, it's in here and it's real. All of this happened. This is not, this is what I used to hold up on stage. I don't know if you can see it. It says, allegedly, mm -hmm. to protect myself, you know, from people who wanted to sue me. There isn't anything in this book, even though it's called Liar Alleged, everything in this book is real to the best of my memory. And that's my legacy. Awesome. Awesome. Well, folks, please get David's book. Uh, it's it's available on Amazon. You could also go to his website. Uh, we'll put the links in the show notes. Uh, David, any last words before we let you go? How could people contact you if they're interested? Maybe someone wants to film a movie or something. How do they how do they reach you? Um, it's very easy. Uh, the website that you'll post is davidvassbook.com. And there's a place there that says there's a place for comments. So you just uh, type in your email address and your comment and it magically comes to me. I don't know how, but it does. And I answer it. I answer everything. I answer everything. I go to the opening of an envelope. I love writing people back, even if it's bad stuff. I want to hear it. I want to hear it all. I'm nosy. I want to hear from all my readers, the good, the bad, the ugly. Bring it. You know, I can handle it. Well, you've been a tremendous guest. Thank you so much for being on the show. And we're definitely going to have you back next time. Let's try to do it in person. That would be great. And um, thank you very much for making my book happen. Absolutely. You wouldn't be talking about it if it weren't for you and your team. Thank Our you. Pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review, as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy, where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.